0: Notre-Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo. Chapter 4. Master Jacques Copenol. As the pensionary of Ghent and his eminence were exchanging very low bows, and a few words in still lower voices, a tall, broad-faced, square-shouldered man entered boldly after Guillaume Rim. He reminded one of a dog in pursuit of a fox. His felt hat and leather jerkin looked very shabby in the midst of the velvet and silk which surrounded him. Supposing him to be some groom who had lost his way, the usher stopped him. "'Hello, my friend. There's no passing here.' The man in the leather coat shouldered him aside. "'What does the fellow mean?' he said in a tone which made the entire hall aware of this strange colloquy. "'Don't you see that I belong to the party?' "'Your name?' asked the usher. "'Jacques Copenol. "'Your titles?' "'Hosier at the sign of the Three Little Chains at Ghent.' The usher started back. It was bad enough to have to announce aldermen and burgomasters. But a hosier? That was hard indeed. The cardinal was on thorns. Everyone was looking and listening.' For two days past, his eminence had been laboring to lick these Flemish bears into some presentable shape, and this outburst was hard upon him. However, Guillaume Rim, with his crafty smile, leaned towards the usher. "'Announce Master Jacques Copenol, clerk to the alderman of the town of Ghent,' he whispered softly. "'Usher,' added the cardinal in a loud voice, "'announce Master Jacques Copenol, Clerk to the alderman of the illustrious town of Ghent. This was a mistake. Guillaume Rim, if left to himself, would have evaded the difficulty, but Copenhall had overheard the cardinal. No, by God's cross, he cried in his voice of thunder. Jacques Copenol, hosier. Do you hear me, Usher? Nothing more, nothing less. By God's cross, a hosier is good enough for me. The Archduke himself has more than once sought his gauntlet in my hose. There was a burst of laughter and applause. A pun is always instantly appreciated in Paris, and consequently always applauded. Let us add that Coppinall was a man of the people, and that the audience about him consisted of the people only. Thus the sympathy between them was prompt, electric, and they were at once on an equal footing the proud exclamation of the Flemish hosier, while it mortified the courtiers, stirred in every humble soul a certain sense of dignity, still vague and indistinct in the fifteenth century. This hosier, who had just bearded the cardinal himself, was their equal. A very pleasant thought for poor devils who were wont to respect and obey the servants of the officers of the bailiff of the abbot of saint jean Viev, train-bearer to the cardinal." Copenol bowed haughtily to his eminence, who returned the salutation of the all-powerful citizen dreaded by Louis XI. Then, while Guillaume Rim, a wise and wily man, as Philippe de Comines has it, watched them both with a smile full of raillery and superiority, they took each his place. The cardinal troubled and disconcerted, Copenol calm and erect doubtless thinking that after all this his title of hosier was quite as good as any other, and that Mary of Burgundy, mother of that Margaret whose marriage he was now negotiating, would have feared him less as cardinal than as hosier, for no cardinal would have led on the men of Ghent against the favorites of the daughter of Charles the Bold. No cardinal could have hardened the hearts of the masses against her tears and her prayers by a single word, when the heiress of Flanders besought her people to grant their pardon at the very foot of their scaffold, while the hosier had but to lift his leathern elbow to cause both your heads to fall, O ye illustrious lords, Guy Ambercourt and Chancellor Guillaume Hugonnet. But all was not over yet for the poor cardinal, who must needs drink to the dregs the bitter cup of association with such low company. THE READER MAY PERHAPS RECALL THE IMPUDENT BEGGAR WHO CLUNG TO THE FRINGES OF THE CARDINAL'S DAIS AT THE OPENING OF THE PROLOGUE. THE ARRIVAL OF THE DISTINGUISHED guests DID NOT CAUSE HIM TO RELAX HIS HOLD. AND WHILE prelates AND AMBASSADORS WERE PACKED AS CLOSE AS DUTCH HERRINGS IN THE SEATS UPON THE PLATFORM, HE MADE HIMSELF QUITE COMFORTABLE, AND COOLLY CROSSED HIS LEGS UPON THE ARCHITRAVE. SUCH INSOLENCE WAS UNUSUAL and no one noted it at the moment, attention being fixed elsewhere. He, for his part, saw nothing in the hall. He swayed his head to and fro with the careless ease of a Neapolitan, repeating ever and anon amid the din, as if mechanically, charity, kind people. And certainly he was the only one in the entire audience who did not deign to turn his head to listen to the altercation between Coppinol and the usher. Now, as chance would have it, the master hosier of Ghent, with whom the people already sympathized strongly, and upon whom all eyes were fixed, seated himself in the front row upon the platform, just above the beggar. And they were not a little amazed to see the Flemish ambassador, after glancing at the rascal beneath him, give him a friendly slap upon his tattered shoulder. The beggar turned— surprise, recognition, delight were visible in both faces. Then, without paying the slightest heed to the throng of spectators, the hosier and the scurvy knave fell to talking in low tones, clasping each other's hands, while the rags of Clopin Troifoux, displayed against the cloth of gold of the dais, produced the effect of a caterpillar upon an orange. The novelty of this strange scene excited such an outburst of mirth in the hall that the cardinal quickly perceived it. He bent forward, and unable from his position to catch more than a glimpse of Troifu's disgraceful garments, he quite naturally supposed that the beggar was asking alms. And, indignant at his audacity, he exclaimed, Sir Bailiff of the palace, throw me that rascal into the river. By God's cross, Sir Cardinal, said Coppenole without releasing Clopin's hand. He is my friend. Noël, Noël, cried the mob. From that instant, Master Coppenole was in high favor with the people, in Paris as in Ghent. For men of his cut always are, says Philippe de Comines, when they are thus disorderly. The cardinal bit his lip. He bent towards his neighbor, the abbot of saint jean and said in an undertone, "'Pleasant ambassadors are these sent us by the Archduke "'to announce the coming of Lady Margaret.' "'Your Eminence,' replied the abbot, "wastes his courtesies upon these Flemish grunters. "'Margaritas ante porcos.' "'Say rather,' replied the cardinal with a smile, "'porcos ante margaritum.' "'All the little court in priestly robes "'went into ecstasies over the joke. "'The cardinal felt slightly comforted, He was quits with Copanol. His pun also had been applauded. Now let those of our readers who have the power of generalizing an image and an idea, as it is the pleasant fashion to express it, allow us to ask them if they have a distinct conception of the spectacle afforded, at the moment that we claim their attention, by the vast parallelogram of the great hall of the palace. In the center of the hall, against the western wall, a broad and magnificent platform covered with gold brocade, upon which stepped in procession, through a small arched doorway, a number of grave and reverend personages, successively announced by the nasal voice of an usher. On the foremost benches, already seated, various venerable figures wrapped in ermine, velvet, and scarlet. Around the dais, where all was dignity and silence, below, in front, everywhere, a great crowd and a great uproar, a thousand eyes from the crowd fixed upon every face on the platform, a thousand murmurs upon the announcement of every name. Certainly the sight is a strange one, and well worthy the attention of the spectators. But below there, at the extreme end, what is that kind of trestle work with the four motley puppets above and four more below? Who is that pale-faced man in a black coat beside the boards? Alas, dear reader, that is Pierre Gringoire and his prologue. We had all entirely forgotten him. This was precisely what he feared. From the instant that the cardinal entered, Gringoire had never ceased working for the salvation of his prologue. He at first enjoined the actors, who remained in suspense, to go on, and to raise their voices. Then, seeing that no one was listening, he stopped them. And then, after the interruption had lasted nearly fifteen minutes, he began to stamp, to struggle, to question Gisquette and Leonard, and to encourage his neighbors to call for the prologue. All in vain. Not an eye would move from the cardinal, the embassy, and the dais— the sole center of that vast circle of visual rays. We must therefore believe, and we say it with regret, that the prologue was beginning to be somewhat tedious to the audience at the moment that his eminence caused so terrible a diversion. After all, the spectacle was the same upon the dais as upon the marble table, the conflict between labor and religion, nobility and trade, and many people preferred to see them simply in living, breathing reality, elbowing and pushing, in flesh and blood, in this Flemish embassy, in this episcopal court, beneath the cardinal's robe, beneath the jacket of Copanol, rather than painted and decked out, speaking in artificial verse, and, as it were, stuffed with straw beneath the white and yellow tunics in which Gringoire had arrayed them. However, When our poet saw that peace was beginning to reign once more, he hit upon a stratagem which might have saved all. Sir, said he, turning towards one of his neighbors, a good fat fellow with a patient face, suppose they begin again. Begin what? said the neighbor. Why, the mystery, said Gringoire. If you like, responded the neighbor. This lukewarm approval was enough for Gringoire. And acting for himself, he began to shout, mixing with the crowd as much as he could. Go on with the miracle play. Go on. The devil, said Joannes de Molandino, what are they bawling about over there? For Gringoire made noise enough for four. Say, boys, isn't the play done? They want to have it all over again? It's not fair. No, no, cried the students. Down with the mystery. Down with it. But Gringoire seemed ubiquitous, and shouted louder than before, "'Go on! Go on!' These outcries attracted the attention of the cardinal. "'Bailiff,' he said to a tall, dark man seated near him, "'are those devils caught in a font of holy water "'that they make such an infernal noise?' The bailiff of the palace was a species of amphibious magistrate, a sort of bat of the judicial order." partaking at once of the nature of the rat and the bird, the judge and the soldier. He approached his eminence, and, not without serious fears of his displeasure, stammered out an explanation of the popular misconduct, that noon had come before his eminence, and that the actors were obliged to begin without awaiting his eminence. The cardinal burst out laughing. Upon my word, the rector of the university had better have done as much. What say you, Master Guillaume Rim?" "My lord," replied Guillaume Rim, "let us be content that we have escaped half the play; it is just so much gained." "May those rascals go on with their performance?" asked the bailiff. "Go on, go on," said the cardinal; "it's all the same to me; I will read my breviary meantime. The bailiff advanced to the edge of the platform and cried aloud, after imposing silence by a wave of his hand, "'Citizens, commoners, and residents, to satisfy those who wish the play to begin again, and those who wish it to end, his eminence orders that it be continued.' Both parties were forced to submit. However, the author and the audience long cherished a grudge against the cardinal the characters on the stage accordingly resumed their recital, and Gringoire hoped that the rest of his work at least would be heard. This hope soon proved as illusory as all the rest. Silence was indeed restored to a certain extent among the audience, but Gringoire had not remarked that, at the moment when the cardinal gave the order to go on, the dais was far from being filled." And that in the train of the Flemish embassy came other personages forming part of the procession, whose names and titles shouted out in the midst of his prologue by the intermittent cry of the usher made many ravages in it. Imagine the effect in the midst of a play of the shrill voice of an usher uttering between two rhymes and often between two hemistiches such parentheses as these, Master Jacques Charmalou. King's Attorney in the Ecclesiastical Court. de d'Erlais, Esquire, Keeper of the Office of Captain of the Watch of the City of Paris. Master Galliot de Jamouillac, Knight, Lord of Broussac, Chief of the King's Ordinance. Master Drul-Raguier, Inspector of the Woods and Waters of our Lord the King in the lands of France, Champagne, and Brie. Master Louis de Granville, knight, counsellor, and chamberlain to the king, admiral of France, keeper of the forest of Vincennes, master Denis le Mercier, guardian of the home for the blind of Paris. This at last became unendurable. This strange accompaniment, which made it very hard to follow the play, enraged Gringoire all the more because he could not blind himself to the fact that the interest was constantly increasing and that all his work needed was to be heard. It was indeed difficult to conceive of a more ingenious and more dramatic context. The four characters of the prologue were lamenting their terrible embarrassment when Venus in person appeared before them, clad in a fine coat of mail, emblazoned with the ship from the seal of the city of Paris. She came herself to claim the dolphin promised to the fairest of the fair, Jupiter, whose thunder was heard muttering in the dressing-room below, supported her claim, and the goddess was about to triumph, that is, speaking without metaphor, to marry the Dauphin, when a young child, habited in white damask and holding a daisy, an obvious allusion to the Lady of Flanders, came to contest the prize with Venus. Theatrical effect and sudden change of affairs— After some controversy, Venus, Margaret, and those behind the scenes, agreed to refer the matter to the wise decision of the Holy Virgin. There was also another fine part, that of Don Pedro, king of Mesopotamia, but amid so many interruptions, it was difficult to discover the object of his introduction. All these characters came up the ladder. But it was all in vain— None of these beauties were appreciated or understood. With the cardinal's entrance, an invisible and magical cord seemed suddenly to draw all eyes from the marble table to the dais, from the southern to the western portion of the hall. Nothing could free the audience from the spell. Every eye was fixed, and the newcomers and their accursed names and their faces and their dresses were a perpetual source of distraction. It was heartrending. Save for Gisquette and Leonard, who occasionally turned away when Gringoire pulled them by the sleeve, save for the patient fat neighbor, no one listened to, no one looked at the poor, forsaken morality. Gringoire saw nothing but profiles. With what bitterness he saw his whole framework of fame and poetry crumble away bit by bit and to think that this very mob had been on the point of revolting against the bailiff from sheer impatience to hear his work. Now that they had it, they cared nothing for it, this same performance which began amid such universal applause. Eternal ebb and flow of popular favor. To think that they had come so near to hanging the bailiff's men. What would he not have given to recover that golden hour? The usher's brutal monologue ceased at last. Everyone had arrived, and Gringoire breathed again. The actors went bravely on. But then, what should Master Copenel, the hosier, do but rise suddenly? And Gringoire heard him utter, amid universal attention, this abominable speech. Citizens and squires of Paris, I know not, by God's cross, what we are doing here. I do indeed see in yonder corner, upon those boards, people who look as if they were spoiling for a fight. I don't know whether that is what you call a mystery, but it is not at all amusing. They abuse one another and get no farther. For full fifteen minutes I have been waiting for the first blow. Nothing comes. They are cowards, who deal in no other weapons than insults. You ought to fetch a few wrestlers from London or Rotterdam, and then you'd have a treat. You would see blows that could be heard all over the place, but those fellows yonder are a disgrace. They might at least give us a morris dance or some other mummery. This is not what I was told I should see. I was promised a feast of fools and the election of a lord of misrule. We have our lord of misrule in Ghent, too, and we're not behind you in that by God's cross. But this is how we do it. We collect a crowd as you do here. Then every man in his turn puts his head through a hole and pulls a face at the rest. He who makes the ugliest is chosen pope by popular acclaim. There, it's very amusing. Would you like to choose your pope after the fashion of my country? At least it would be better than listening to those chatterboxes. If they will come and make their grimaces through the window, they can join the game. What say you, sir-citizens?" "'There are quite enough absurd specimens of both sexes here "'to give us a good Flemish laugh, "'and we have ugly mugs enough to hope for some fine grimaces.' Gringoire longed to answer, but amazement, anger, indignation robbed him of speech. Moreover, the proposal of the popular hosier was greeted with such enthusiasm by those plain citizens who were flattered at being dubbed squires that all opposition was useless. Nothing remained but to follow the current. Gringoire hid his face in his hands, not being lucky enough to have a cloak to cover his head, like Agamemnon of Timanthes. Chapter 5 Quasimodo In the twinkling of an eye, all was ready for the execution of Copinol's idea. Citizens, students, and lawyers' clerks set briskly to work. The little chapel opposite the marble table was chosen as the stage for the grimaces. A broken pane in the pretty rose window over the door left free a circle of stone, through which it was agreed that the contestants should thrust their heads. To reach it, all were obliged to climb upon a couple of casks, which had been discovered somewhere and set one upon the other. It was settled that all candidates, men or women, for a papist might be chosen, lest the effect of their grimaces should be weakened, should cover their faces and remain hidden in the chapel until the proper moment to appear. In less than an instant the chapel was filled with aspirants, upon whom the door was closed. Coppenole, from his seat, directed everything, arranged everything. During the confusion the cardinal, no less disconcerted than gringoire withdrew with all his train feigning business and vespers the same crowd which had been so stirred by his coming showing not the least emotion at his departure guillaume rim was the only one who observed his eminence's flight popular attention like the sun pursued its course starting from one end of the hall after pausing for some time in the center it was now at the other end. The marble table, the brocaded dais, had had their day. It was the turn of Louis XI's chapel. The field was now clear for every kind of folly. No one remained but the Flemings and the vulgar herd. The wry faces began. The first to appear at the window, with eyelids inverted until they showed the red, a cavernous mouth and a forehead wrinkled like the boots of a hussar under the empire, produced such inextinguishable laughter that Homer would have taken all these clowns for gods. And yet the great hall was anything but an Olympus, and Gringoire's poor Jupiter knew this better than anyone. A second, a third wry face followed, then another, and another, and still the shouts of laughter and stamps of delight increased. There was a certain peculiar intoxication in the spectacle, a certain potent ecstasy and fascination, which it would be hard to explain to the reader of our own day and society. Let him imagine a series of faces presenting in turn every geometric form, from the triangle to the trapezium, from the cone to the polyhedron, every human expression, from rage to lust, every age, from the wrinkles of the newborn babe, to the furrows of the old and dying. Every religious phantasmagoria, from Faunus to Beelzebub. Every animal profile, from the jaws of the dog to the beak of the bird, from the boar's head to the pig's snout. Let him picture to himself all the grotesque heads carved on the Pont Neuf, those petrified nightmares from the hand of Germain Pilon, taking breath and life and coming in turn to gaze at you with fiery eyes. All the masks from a Venetian carnival passing before your glass. In one word, a human kaleidoscope. The revelry became more and more Flemish. Tenier could have given but an imperfect idea of it. Imagine Salvatore Rosa's battle-piece turned into a bacchanal feast." There were no longer students, ambassadors, townspeople, men or women, no longer a Clopin Toyfou, a Gilles Le Cornu, a Simon Catrelive, or a Robin Pouspin. All distinctions died in the common license. The great hall ceased to be anything but a vast furnace of effrontery and mirth, wherein every mouth was a cry, every face a grimace, every individual a posture. The sum total howled and yelled. The strange faces which took their turn in gnashing their teeth through the rose window were like so many brands cast into the flames. And from this effervescent mob arose like steam from a furnace, a sharp, shrill, piercing sound like the buzz of a gnat's wings. Oh, confound it! Just look at that face! That's nothing! Let's have another! Guillemette Maugerepuis, do look at that bull's head. It only lacks horns. It is not your husband. Another. By the Pope's head, what's the meaning of that contortion? Hello there. That's not fair. You should show only your face. That damned Parette Caillebotte. She is just capable of such a thing. Noel. Noel. I'm smothering. There's a fellow whose ears are too big to go through. But we must do justice to our friend, Jeanne. Amidst this uproar, he was still to be seen perched upon his pillar, like a cabin boy on a topsail. He exerted himself with incredible fury. His mouth was opened wide, and there issued from it a yell which no one heard. Not that it was drowned by the general clamor, tremendous though it was, but because it undoubtedly reached the limit of audible shrillness the 12,000 vibrations of Sauveur, or the 8,000 of Biot. As for Gringoire, the first moment of depression over, he recovered his composure. He braced himself to meet adversity. "'Go on!' he cried for the third time to his actors, whom he regarded as mere talking machines. Then, as he strode up and down in front of the marble table— He was seized with a desire to appear in his turn at the chapel window, were it only for the pleasure of making faces at that ungrateful mob. But no, that would be unworthy of us. No vengeance. Let us struggle on to the end, he murmured. The power of poetry over the people is great. I will bring them back. Let us see whether wry faces or polite learning will triumph. Alas, he was left the only spectator of his play. It was even worse than before. Now he saw nothing but people's backs. I am wrong. The patient fat man, whom he had already consulted at a critical moment, was still turned towards the theater. As for Gisquette and Léonard, they had long since deserted. Gringoire was touched to the heart by the fidelity of his only listener— He went up to him and addressed him, shaking him slightly by the arm, for the worthy man was leaning against the railing in a light doze. "'Sir,' said Gringoire, "'I thank you.' "'Sir,' replied the fat fellow with a yawn, "'for what?' "'I see what annoys you,' resumed the poet. "'It is all this noise which prevents you from hearing readily. But be calm.' Your name shall be handed down to posterity. Your name, if you please? Renaud Chateau, keeper of the seals of the Châtelet at Paris, at your service. Sir, you are the sole representative of the Muses here, said Gringoire. You are too kind, sir, replied the keeper of the seals of the Châtelet. You are the only man, added Gringoire, who has paid proper attention to the play. "'How do you like it?' "'Ha-ha,' replied the fat magistrate, who was but half-awake. "'Jolly enough, in truth.' Gringoire was forced to content himself with this eulogy, for a storm of applause, mingled with prodigious shouts, cut short their conversation. The Lord of Misrule was elected. "'Noel! Noel! Noel!' shouted the people on all sides." there was indeed a marvelous grin, which now beamed through the hole in the rose window. After all the pentagonal, hexagonal, and heteroclitic faces which had followed one another in quick succession at the window, without realizing that ideal of the grotesque, constructed by imagination, exalted by revelry, it required nothing less to gain the popular vote than the sublime grimace which had just dazzled the assembly. Master Copenol himself applauded, and Clopin Troyfou, who had competed for the prize, and heaven knows to what intensity of ugliness his features could attain, confessed himself conquered. We will do the same. We will not try to give the reader any idea of that tetrahedron like nose, of that horseshoe shaped mouth, of that small left eye overhung by a bushy red eyebrow, while the right eye was completely hidden by a monstrous wart, of those uneven, broken teeth with sad gaps here and there like the battlements of a fortress, of that callous lip over which one of these teeth projected like an elephant's tusk, of that forked chin, and especially of the expression pervading all this, that mixture of malice, amazement, and melancholy. Imagine, if you can, that comprehensive sight. The vote was unanimous. The crowd rushed into the chapel. They returned, leading the fortunate Lord of Misrule in triumph. But it was then only that surprise and admiration reached their highest pitch. The grimace was his natural face. Or rather, the entire man was a grimace a large head bristling with red hair. Between his shoulders, an enormous hump with a corresponding prominence in front. Legs and thighs so singularly crooked that they touched only at the knees and, seen from the front, resembled two reaping hooks united at the handle. Broad feet, huge hands, and with all this deformity a certain awe-inspiring air of vigor, agility, and courage. Strange exception to the rule which declares power, as well as beauty, to be the result of harmony. Such was the pope whom the fools had chosen to reign over them. He looked like a giant broken to pieces and badly cemented together. When this species of cyclop appeared upon the threshold of the chapel, motionless, thick-set, Almost as broad as he was long, the square of his base, as a great man once expressed it. The people recognized him instantly, by his parti colored red and purple coat spangled with silver, and particularly by the perfection of his ugliness, and cried aloud with one voice: It is Quasimodo, the bell ringer! It is Quasimodo, the humpback of Notre Dame! Quasimodo, the one eyed! "'Quasimodo, the bandy-legged. "'Noel, Noel!' "'The poor devil evidently had an abundance of nicknames to choose from. "'Let all pregnant women beware,' cried the students. "'Or all those who hope to be so,' added Joannis. "'In fact, the women hid their faces. "'Oh, the ugly monkey,' said one of them. "'As wicked as he is ugly,' added another. "'He's the very devil,' added a third. I am unlucky enough to live near Notre-Dame. I hear him prowling among the gutters by night. With the cats. He's always on our roofs. He casts spells upon us through the chimneys. The other evening he came and pulled a face at me through the window. I thought it was a man. He gave me such a fright. I'm sure he attends the witches' Sabbath. Once he left a broomstick on my leads. Oh, what a disagreeable humpback's face he has. "'Oh, the villainous creature! Fa, The men, on the contrary, were charmed and applauded. Quasimodo, the object of this uproar, still stood at the chapel door, sad and serious, letting himself be admired. A student, Robin Pouspin, I think, laughed in his very face and somewhat too close." "'Quasimodo merely took him by the belt "'and cast him ten paces away through the crowd, "'all without uttering a word. "'Master Coppenole, lost in wonder, approached him. "'By God's cross and the Holy Father, "'you are the most lovely monster that I ever saw in my life. "'You deserve to be Pope of Rome as well as of Paris.' "'So saying, he laid his hand sportively upon his shoulder.' Quasimodo never budged. Copenol continued. "'You're a rascal with whom I have a longing to feast. Were it to cost me a new dozen of twelve pounds tours, what say you?' Quasimodo made no answer. "'By God's cross,' said the hosier, "'you're not deaf, are you?' He was, indeed, deaf. Still, he began to lose his temper at Copenol's proceedings, and turned suddenly towards him, gnashing his teeth so savagely that the Flemish giant recoiled, like a bulldog before a cat. Then a circle of terror and respect, whose radius was not less than fifteen geometric paces, was formed about the strange character. An old woman explained to Master Copenol that Quasimodo was deaf. "'Deaf,' said the hosier, with his hearty Flemish laugh. "'By God's cross,' But he is a perfect pope. Ha, I know him now, cried Jean, who had at last descended from his capital to view Quasimodo more closely. It's my brother, the archdeacon's bell ringer. Good day, Quasimodo. What a devil of a fellow, said Robin Pouspin, still aching from his fall. He appears, he's a humpback. He walks, he's bandy legged, he looks at you, he is blind of one eye. You talk to him? He is deaf. By the way, what use does this polyphemus make of his tongue? He talks when he likes, said the old woman. He grew deaf from ringing the bells. He is not dumb. That's all he lacks, remarked Jean. And he has one eye too many, said Robin Pouspin. Not at all, judiciously observed Jehan. A one-eyed man is far more incomplete than a blind one he knows what he lacks. But all the beggars, all the lackeys, all the cut-purses, together with the students, had gone in procession to fetch, from the storeroom of the bassoche, the pasteboard tiara and mock robes of the Pope of Fools, or Lord of Misrule. Quasimodo submitted to be arrayed in them without a frown, and with a sort of proud docility. Then he was seated upon a barrow painted in motley colors. Twelve officers of the Fraternity of Fools raised it to their shoulders, and a sort of bitter, scornful joy dawned upon the morose face of the cyclop when he saw beneath his shapeless feet the heads of so many handsome, straight, and well-made men. Then the howling Tatterdemalion train set out, as was the custom, to make the tour of the galleries within the palace before parading the streets and public squares. CHAPTER Six, ESMERALDA. We are delighted to be able to inform our readers that during the whole of this scene Gringoire and his play had stood their ground. His actors, spurred on by him, had not stopped spouting his verses, and he had not given over listening. He had resigned himself to the uproar, and was determined to go on to the bitter end, not despairing of recovering some portion of public attention. This ray of hope revived when he saw Quasimodo, Copenol, and the deafening escort of the Lord of Misrule leave the hall with a tremendous noise. The crowd followed eagerly on their heels. "'Good,' said he to himself, "'now we have got rid of all the Marplots.' "'Unfortunately, all the Mar plots meant the whole audience. "'In the twinkling of an eye, the great hall was empty. "'To be exact, there still remained a handful of spectators, "'some scattered, others grouped around the pillars, "'women, old men, or children, "'who had had enough of the tumult and the hurly-burly. "'Some few students still lingered, "'astride the window frames, gazing into the square. "'Well,' thought Gringoire, here are still enough to hear the end of my mystery. There are but few, but it is a picked public, an intellectual audience. A moment later, a melody meant to produce the greatest effect at the appearance of the Holy Virgin was missing. Gringoire saw that his musicians had been borne off by the procession of the Lord of Misrule. "'Proceed,' he said stoically." he went up to a group of townspeople, who seemed to him to be talking about his play. This is the fragment of the conversation which he caught. "'You know, Master Cheneteau, the Hotel de Navarre, which belonged to Monsieur de Nemours?' "'Yes, opposite the Brack Chapel. "'Well, the Treasury Department has just left it to Guillaume Alexandre, "'the painter of armorial bearings, for six pounds and eight pence Paris a year.' How high rents are getting to be. Well, well, said Gringoire with a sigh. The rest are listening. Comrades, shouted one of the young scamps in the window. Esmeralda, Esmeralda is in the square. This cry had a magical effect. Everyone in the hall rushed to the windows, climbing up the walls to get a glimpse and repeating, Esmeralda, Esmeralda. At the same time, a great noise of applause was heard outside. "'What do they mean by their Esmeralda?' said Gringoire, clasping his hands in despair. "'Oh, heavens! I suppose it's the turn of the windows now.' He turned back again to the marble table, and saw that the play had stopped. It was just the moment when Jupiter should have appeared with his thunder. Now Jupiter stood motionless at the foot of the stage." Michel Giborne, cried the angry poet. What are you doing there? Is that put down in your part? Go up, I tell you. Alas, said Jupiter, one of the students has taken away the ladder. Gringoire looked. It was but too true. All communication was cut off between his plot and its solution. The rascal, he muttered. And why did he carry off that ladder? That he might see Esmeralda. Esmeralda piteously responded Jupiter. He said, Stay, there's a ladder which is doing no one any good, and he took it. This was the finishing stroke. Gringoire received it with submission. May the devil seize you, said he to the actors, and if I am paid, you shall be too. Then he beat a retreat with a drooping head, but last to leave, like a general who has fought a brave fight. And as he descended the winding palace staircase, he muttered between his teeth, A pretty pack of donkeys and clowns these Parisians are. They come to hear a miracle play, and then pay no heed to it. Their whole minds are absorbed in anybody and everybody, in clopin treuil the cardinal, Copenol, Quasimodo, the devil." but in Madame Virgin Mary, not a whit. If I had known, I'd have given you your fill of Virgin Mary's, you boobies. And I, to come to see faces, and to see nothing but backs. To be a poet, and to have the success of an apothecary. True, Homer begged his way through Greek villages. And Nazo died in exile among the Muscovites." but may the devil flay me if I know what they mean by their Esmeralda. What kind of a word is that, anyhow? It must be Egyptian. Book Two, Chapter One, From Charybdis to Scylla Night comes on early in January. The streets were already dark when Gringoire left the palace. This nightfall pleased him. He longed to find some dark and solitary alley where he might meditate at his ease, and let the philosopher apply the first healing balm to the poet's wounds. Besides, philosophy was his only refuge, for he knew not where to find shelter. After the total failure of his first theatrical effort, he durst not return to the lodging which he had occupied, opposite the Haymarket, in the Rue Grenier-sur-Lau, having reckoned upon what the provost was to give him for his epithalamium, to pay Master Guillaume Dulcire, farmer of the taxes on cloven-footed animals in Paris, the six months' rent which he owed him, namely, twelve Paris pence, twelve times the worth of everything that he owned in the world, including his breeches, his shirt, and his hat. After a moment's pause for reflection— temporarily sheltered under the little gateway of the prison of the treasurer of the Saint-Chapelle, as to what refuge he should seek for the night, having all the pavements of Paris at his disposition. He remembered having noticed, the week before, in the Rue de la Savatrie, at the door of a parliamentary councillor, a stone block for mounting a mule, and having said to himself that this stone would, on occasion, make a very excellent pillow." for a beggar or a poet. He thanked Providence for sending him so good an idea, but as he prepared to cross the palace courtyard on his way to the crooked labyrinth of the city, formed by the windings of all those antique sisters—the Rue de la Barillerie, de la Vieille Draperie, de la Savatrie, de la Juivrie, etc., still standing at the present day with their nine-story houses, He saw the procession of the Lord of Misrule, which was also just issuing from the palace and rushing across the courtyard, with loud shouts, an abundance of glaring torches, and his, Gringoire's, own music. This sight opened the wound to his self-esteem. He fled. In the bitterness of dramatic misfortune, all that recalled the day's festival incensed him and made his wound bleed afresh. He meant to cross St. Michael's Bridge. Some children were careering up and down there with rockets and crackers. A plague on all fireworks, said Gringoire, and he turned towards Exchange Bridge. The houses at the head of the bridge were adorned with three large banners, representing the king, the Dauphin, and Margaret of Flanders, and six little bannerets. With portraits of the Duke of Austria, Cardinal Bourbon, Monsieur de Beaujeu, and Madame Jeanne de France, the bastard of Bourbon, and I know not who besides, all lighted up by torches. The mob gazed in admiration. Lucky painter, Jean Forbeau, said Gringoire, with a heavy sigh, and he turned his back on banners and bannerets. A street opened directly before him. It looked so dark and deserted that he hoped it would afford a way of escape from every echo, as well as every reflection of the festival. He plunged down it. In a few moments he struck his foot against something, stumbled, and fell. It was the big bunch of hawthorn which the members of the Besoche had that morning placed at the door of a President of the Parliament in honor of the day. Gringoire bore this new misfortune bravely he rose, and walked to the bank of the river. Leaving behind him the civil and criminal towers, and passing by the great walls of the royal gardens, along the unpaved shore, where the mud was ankle-deep, he reached the western end of the city, and for some time contemplated the islet of the Passeur-au-Vache, which has since vanished beneath the bronze horse on the Pont-Neuf. The islet lay before him in the darkness— a black mass across the narrow strip of whitish water which lay between him and it. The rays of a tiny light dimly revealed a sort of beehive-shaped hut in which the cow's ferryman sought shelter for the night. Lucky ferryman, thought Gringoire, you never dream of glory and you write no wedding songs. What are the marriages of kings and Burgundian duchesses to you? You know no marguerites, save those which grow upon your turf in April for the pasturage of your cows. And I, poet that I am, am hooted, and I shiver, and I owe twelve pence, and the soles of my shoes are so thin that you might use them for the glasses in your lantern. Thanks, ferryman. Your hut rests my eyes, and makes me forget Paris." He was roused from his almost lyric ecstasy by a huge, double-headed St. John's cracker, which was suddenly sent up from the blessed cabin. The ferryman was taking his part in the festivities of the day and setting off a few fireworks. The explosion set Gringoire's teeth on edge. "'A cursed festival!' he exclaimed. "'Will you pursue me forever? "'Oh, my God!' even to the ferryman's house? He gazed at the Seine at his feet, and a horrible temptation overcame him. Ah, said he, how cheerfully I would drown myself if the water were not so cold. Then he took a desperate resolve. It was, since he could not escape from the Lord of Misrule, Jeanne Forbeau's flags, the bunches of hawthorn the rockets and squibs, to plunge boldly into the very heart of the gaiety and go directly to the greve. (laughs) At least, thought he, I may find some brands from the bonfire to warm myself, and I may sup on some crumbs from the three great sugar escutcheons which were to be served on the public sideboard. That's so